Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Hey, everyone. This is Greg Myers, the host of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and we've got a great episode ahead today on episode 169. My special guests are President Lynn Baldwin and CEO Jack Baldwin from BHMI. BHMI develops and licenses the Concourse Financial Software Suite, which is an integrated cohesive collection of back office products that operate in near real time. The product is architected around the common core with four separate applications that bolt onto it, including extended settlement, reconciliation, fees and commissions, and disputes. BHMI primarily sells to large financial services companies, including financial institutions, banks and co-ops, processors, networks, issuers, and acquirers. Jack and Lynn are passionate about helping injured wildlife and have launched a wildlife center in Nebraska called the Baldwin Wildlife Center, which helps between five and 7,000 injured animals per year. Jack and I go on to have a great conversation around real-time payments, BNPL, FedNow, and more. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Lynn and Jack, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thank you, Greg. Enjoy being here. Yes, thank you, Greg. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Lynn, I'm going to start with you. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Sure, Greg. First of all, I was born in Montana, lived there until the sixth grade when I moved to Texas and went to, we called it junior high at the time, junior high and high school in Odessa, Texas. Jack also went to the same schools I did. We went to Permian High School, which some people recognize as Friday Night Lights. I personally went to SMU my first year and transferred to UT Austin. Jack went to UT Austin from day one. We both have bachelor's degrees in mathematics, and we both have PhDs in computer sciences from UT Austin. Going beyond college, I was on the faculty there for a short period of time before Jack and I moved to Omaha, where we took positions in the mathematics and computer science department at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and we were there for four years. We both left at the same time and went into the cold, cruel world of commercial endeavors, and we first started out with a payment software company. So that's kind of our introduction to payments ATMs, teller machines, signature devices, so on and so forth, primarily in the banking industry. But in 1986, that's when we started our own company, and we just started it with the two of us in 1986. So that kind of overlaps a bit with Jack, but that's my background. Okay, awesome. Well, let's talk about the company. So Jack, tell us what BHMI does. Well, our company develops and licenses the Concourse Financial Software Suite. It's an integrated, cohesive collection of back office products that operate near real time. It's architected around a common core with four separate applications that bolt onto it, and that includes extended settlement, reconciliation, fees and commissions, and disputes. Now, we sell primarily into large scale financial services marketplace, and by that I mean financial institutions, banks, and co-ops, processors, networks, issuers, acquirers, etc. 
But essentially, our product set has applicability in any environment that has demanding back office requirements. Our company, we have fewer than 100 employees, partly by design, and we're strongly technically focused. And that's one of the primary reasons that our products have the architectural and technical sophistication to do what they do. So that, in a nutshell, is a brief description of what we focus on as an organization. They've been doing so for quite a few years. And what countries do you operate in? Well, even though we're headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska, we're an international organization in terms of client set. We support all of our clients out of our corporate headquarters here in Omaha. We have clients in the Pacific Rim in Australia. We have clients in Europe. We have clients in Canada. So we have North American reach, certainly. So yeah, we have worldwide reach. I mean, it's kind of interesting because in the mornings, we have conversations with our European clients. And in the late afternoon and evening, we have conversations with our Australian clients. But we're prepared to talk to our folks any time of the day or night. You have to in our business. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned some of the verticals, financial services and so on. Can you give us sort of a use case? How would a bank use your solutions? Well, all financial institutions, all of these entities that I just indicated, for example, they all have to settle transactions. They do transaction processing in the financial services space. They have to settle that. They have to know what the positions are at the end of the day. In the case of our software, because we operate in real time, they can have instantaneous access to settlement positions of all the different entities that they're processing for. And the same sort of thing applies to these other entities that I mentioned. You've got processors, you've got networks, issuers, acquirers. All of these have the same kind of back office needs. So you've got settlement, you've got reconciliation. If you have transaction partners that you're talking to, all of you have different views of what the various positions of the participants are at any given time. And sometimes these views differ. So you have to have reconciliation to figure it out who's right and who's wrong. And in our environment, and I mentioned the processors and their networks in particular, all of these entities charge money for the services that they provide to the industry. Pass a transaction through a processing network, there's a fee associated with that. In fact, typically there are multiple fees, multiple individuals that are getting paid one way or the other, giving or receiving funds. And this is one of the areas that we're trying to address with our fees and commissions probably, and it's been very well received. Disputes, oh yeah, this is a hot area everywhere. Somebody buys something, it's unsatisfactory, it's not received. Who does what to whom to reconcile the situation? So we deal with a lot with the card networks, which have formalized dispute processes. And these dispute processes are very well documented and are updated typically four times a year. And we have to keep up with these guys. So those are the areas in which we're active. We also add additional products from time to time as the market seems to dictate. Is there typically an integration timeframe when someone buys, you guys have to spend time working closely with them to adjust the software or is it more off the shelf? There is an integration period, certainly, because typically our software, because it's back office, it's fitting in the middle of sort of a processing nexus where we have lots of different parties that are providing data and receiving data from the back office. So yeah, there typically is integration. We've worked on the front ends of transaction processing in the past, and the back office is a more complex, more sophisticated organization. I will say that if you have a clean slate, 
with a company, for example, that's just starting business, it's easier to deal with them than to put our software into a pre-existing environment, particularly given the size and the sophistication of the clients that we're selling to. And then how do you go to market? Do you have a direct sales team or partnership channels or a little of both? A little of both, actually. Given our size, again, which is partly deliberate, we don't have extensive reach from a sales perspective. Where we go, we're effective, but we can't necessarily go everywhere. So we have some partners that we partner with who basically offer up complementary products. We fill a gap that they don't have. They may fill a gap that we don't have. There are clients out there who need software from our partner as well as from ourselves. So it basically is a leverage situation that helps both parties. So yes, we do partnerships. We do have sales relationships with other organizations, but we also sell directly. And that's been our primary sales model for years. Final question on the product. What is sort of the pricing model? Is it sort of just a SaaS-based fee or are there other transaction fees? How do you sort of go to market from a pricing perspective? That's a good question. We don't do SaaS. We've talked about it, but we're primarily a development organization. We're not so much an operations organization. What we attempt to do, because we want to be able to sell into a diversity of accounts, even though we focus very large accounts, even within very large accounts, you still have a diversity of sizings from smaller financial institutions, albeit of some magnitude, up to the very largest. So we set up pricing that we hope is appropriate and will appeal to these different categories of clients. So we have pricing based on transaction tiers, number of transactions in a given period of time, you pay so much. If you have more transactions and you fall in a different category, then you pay more and so on. So that's kind of our model. Like a lot of people, we operate on subscription or leasing models. So you pay us on a yearly basis based on the transaction volumes that you handle. Okay. Lynn, over to you. What would you say differentiates your company from your competitors out there? Oh, that's a good question, Greg. Our main differentiator is that we concentrate on the financial back office with real-time processing. And let me explain that a little bit more. The financial back office, as Jack alluded to, is a more complex environment. Some of our competitors have been on, we call it on the front end, ATMs, POS devices, so on and so forth, driving those. And then they've kind of backed into back office as kind of add-ons to their products. We concentrate on the back office, and that's where we put all of our effort. We talked also about real-time processing. I want to give you just a little background on how we got where we are with real-time processing. A number of years ago, we had a client who came to us and they needed to do something with their back office. Typically at that time, everybody did big batch with their big IBM mainframe. They were going to have to, what they call a forklift uplift to their IBM mainframe to handle more transactions because of their increasing volumes. They also had a CFO who said, I want to know my financial position all day long. They were a switch and they needed to know how much money they were going to get in, how much money they were going to have to pay. At the time, he had to wait till the big IBM mainframe at two in the morning crunched all the data to really be able to manage his cash flow. So we said, well, it was kind of an aha moment. Why don't we do the processing near real time? We'll take the front end transactions, we'll process them immediately 
and then you will have a financial position that you can look at all day long. So that kind of bridged us off of the big batch and onto this near real-time processing, which is where we've come from. So what that really means is anytime we get a transaction from any source, we process it from one end to the other. We take each transaction, if there are fees to be feed, we fee it. If it's going to go to settlement, which they do, then we create the settlement movement that's going to actually settle it. And if it's to go to reconciliation, it goes to reconciliation. We do all that logic before we actually commit that transaction to the database. So that's what we mean by near real-time or real-time processing. It does two big things from my perspective. At the end of the day, when people have to settle up with their partners, we are almost done with all the processing that has to be done for that day. We're not waiting till 10 o'clock at night and saying, oh goodness, we have to process millions of transactions. We are almost done and data is ready for other art partners. The other is that the financial positions are available all the time and are updated real time so that people can understand their financial positions. Those are two big reasons that the real time is an advantage. So you mentioned the real time and the focus on the back office. Were there any other differentiators you wanted to mention? We also pride ourselves on having a really good support team that supports our customers. While Jack said we are small, we are less than 100 people, and we are supporting people internationally, but we offer 365 coverage as well as 24 by 7 to help our customers. And it doesn't matter where they are. If they have an issue, we are on it right away for them. So we pride ourselves in offering outstanding support to our customers anytime that they need us. Yeah, I think in the payments industry, if you're really good at customer service and support and being there for your clients and it truly is in your DNA, it's definitely a differentiator. And it sounds like that's certainly something that you guys focus on. We do. Awesome. So, Jack, let's go back to you. Where do you see the payments industry heading? And you can kind of answer this in the kind of lens of the back office and what you guys do. But where do you see all of this headed, say, in the next two to three years? Oh, gosh. Near term, you're going to see the continued relevance of real-time payments. Of course, we're speaking from a biased position because that's where we operate. But I think you're going to be seeing increases in volumes of real-time payments but also in the terms of the classes of transactions that are processed. Right now, most of the payments that you see on a real-time basis are person-to-person or business-to-business. But I think as time goes on, you're going to see real-time payments supporting complete use case life cycles. Let me give you an example. The current RTP, real-time payment network, that's operated by the clearinghouse in this country since 2017, even though it's not being used to its fullest capabilities, it's been architected to support the complete order entry and fulfillment process. So we're not talking about just placement of orders and the completion of orders, but all of the auxiliary interim types of use cases that would fall into the overall processing of these kinds of transactions. That may include acknowledgement, receipt of goods, order amendment, order cancellation, whatever, all using the same rails. So I think overall, you're going to see greater movement in this direction. Right now, because of the sophistication and complexity of supporting this architectural model, I'm not aware of any particular organization that's taken advantage 
of all the architectural capabilities that RTP provides, but it's there and it's intended to be used in time. I think another area, not so much in this country, but you're going to see greater payments integration, particularly in cross-border real-time payments. I think you're seeing this in Europe and we're seeing it in Australia, for example, where adoption of the new ISO 2022 messaging standard is widespread. There's not as much movement in this area in the United States, in part because the United States financial services market is so large geographically in its own right. So the issue of cross-border payments are not as paramount as they are in, say, other areas, particularly Europe. But you're going to see more of this, and you're going to see greater adoption of the ISO 2022 standard in this regard, which is basically the lingua franca of contemporary payments networks. You're not going to have any new payments network that's going to be created that's not based on this new ISO 2022 standard. Now, 10 years from now, I don't know, Greg, I can't tell, but I know there's going to be greater innovation. And let me say why I can't tell. I mean, several years ago, the controller of the currency, they set up a new class of banking charter called the Special Purpose National Bank Charter. And its purpose was to encourage the creation of new non-traditional fintech organizations whose forms and objectives may not have been considered yet. This particular vehicle, you've had a number of organizations that have taken advantage of this new class of charter to set up organizations dealing with cryptocurrencies. Who would have guessed 10 years ago that you'd have companies whose entire focus is on currencies that don't really exist except in the ether? So you buy, sell, deposit, withdraw, just as you would do with real currencies and real banks, but they're cryptocurrencies. And who would have guessed that you would have had something like this 10 years ago in a slightly different area? I mean, 10 years ago, who'd have figured you'd have the whole buy now, pay later phenomenon, which is basically an updated twist on the old 1950s department store layaway plan. Of course, you had companies that have started, grown, and gotten huge valuations when they've gone public. Of course, now you're starting to see the flip side of that, where not surprisingly, when you give credit to people whose credit histories are unknown, you're starting to see an increasing default rate, and that's happening. And also, I think because people are concerned about the possibility of a recession, you're seeing people pulling back from using the services and that's why you're seeing a number of the buy now, pay later companies that are laying off some people. But who knows what's going to be happening in 10 years? But I'm pleased that the government, which typically moves at a snail's pace, has basically set up a vehicle so that you can basically accommodate companies whose purposes don't even exist right now, how they can come to market, they can be validated by the Fed and go into business offering financial services that Again, we haven't even considered. You're probably familiar with the words buy now, pay later, how it has grown exponentially over the past couple of years and is still one of the hottest trends in payments. It's become a norm for retailers to provide a buy now, pay later payment option for their customers, many of whom no longer want to use credit cards for larger purchases. Business leaders are tasked with finding a payment solution that offers a seamless digital customer experience that results in increased sales. Citizens Pay is a buy now, pay later solution created by citizens that helps retailers grow sales and build loyalty by providing customers with transparent installment financing, longer repayment terms, and a dedicated line of credit for repeat purchases. 
It's also optimized for merchants looking to offer a payment option to consumers with more mature and sophisticated purchases in mind, like a new living room set, fitness equipment, or a kitchen appliance. With Citizens Pay, merchants have the security of a leading national bank and an omnichannel platform designed to streamline the buying process. If you want to learn more about Citizens Pay, follow the link in our bio and visit the Citizens Pay Resource Hub, where you can find additional information about Citizens Pay and the Buy Now Pay Later payment model. This podcast is part of a paid partnership between Citizens Pay and the Leaders in Payments podcast. What do you think about Fed now? Does that bring anything new to the whole real-time faster payment space, or is it more just an alternative to what we have today? A little bit of both. It's an alternative to RTP. The United States is one of the few countries, in fact, it's the only country I can think of, where the real-time payments capabilities offered inside the country haven't been mandated by the National Banking Authority, i.e. the Federal Reserve. In every other instance that I can think of, the National Banking Authority has been the mover, shaker, authorizer, and approver of any national real-time payments network. I think in reaction to how slowly the Fed was moving, you had the RTP network that was created by the Clearinghouse, which is basically funded by some of the largest banks in North America. But because of that, RTP, which offers widespread service, in fact, over half the DDA accounts in the United States have access to RTP just because the sizes of the banks that are behind RTP, but you have a lot of the financial institutions that just have some basic reluctance to join up with RTP because essentially the thing is run by their larger competitors. Despite assurances to the contrary, you have some of these smaller banks that just are a little leery about being behind an organization that is run by their competitors. They just can't be convinced that they're necessarily going to be honest brokers. So even though they're slow to move, the Federal Reserve is now behind the FedNow organization, which is basically a pure competitor to RTP. And it's going to be coming live supposedly next year or the year after. They're talking bravely of maybe actually going into production next year. And they're doing some intelligent things right now. So is it going to be revolutionary? No, the capability has been there at some level with the RTP network. But in terms of having greater acceptance by the marketplace, I think they're certainly going to have that because the Fed's considered to be an honest broker. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate your views. I appreciate your stance on 10 years from now, because you're right. If we were to rewind 10 years, we certainly wouldn't have seen the latest trends coming. So who knows what's ahead 10 years from now. It'll be interesting to see what happens, that's for sure. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your personal journeys. So Lynn kind of talked early on about your background and how you guys got to Omaha. So maybe, Jack, if you don't mind picking up the story from where she left off, why did you start the company? What was the thought process behind it? Fill in any gaps there, if you don't mind. Well, we started the organization way back in 1986. As far as the motivator, we wanted our own organization. We had been working for other people, so we decided to work for ourselves. And there were some opportunities that came about where we were approached by organizations that wanted us to help put in some pilots for them. And well, we did that. And I said, well, can you put in some more pilots for us? Well, we can do that. Well, after a bit, it became obvious that because of the demand that we were confronting, we were either going to have to quit doing what we were doing because we couldn't meet the demand, or we were going to have to bring in additional people. So that's basically when we decided to 
expand the company from the two of us to a wider set of people. And individually, Chuck Hackett joined our organization not too terribly long after Lynn and I started in 86. He's since semi-retired to Florida. Mike Meeks was the other who joined our organization, and Mike is still with us as Senior Vice President of Software Development. Now, because we started the company, the positions that we assume, Lynn's president and I'm CEO, but despite the titles that we have, we tend to operate holistically. Each of us tries to do what we tend to do best. So Lynn generally oversees the overall corporate operations, and I generally oversee the business side of things. That's kind of how we got where we are as individuals and the positions that we assume in the corporation. We just walked into the positions. (laughs) Yeah, we walked into the positions. I would expand just a little bit on the corporate journey from when we really started till now. In the beginning, as Jack said, we were approached to do some pilots for some folks. We really excelled at doing custom software development in various verticals. We did transportation, logistics, prepaid cards. And some of those, actually, we were able to use our payments background in fully creating a functional system for these customers. So we did a lot of custom software development, as we mentioned in these various verticals. Then in the early 2000s, we had the opportunity, which I mentioned earlier, about the back office project. It was a project for a client. And that's when we said, this is an opportunity for us to have a product. So we transformed ourselves from a custom software house into a product company. So there's a journey there. We always look for really quality developers because custom software, you don't know what you're going to build, but you know your developers can do it. Once you cross over to product and especially in back office, now we obviously still need quality development staff, but we also need people who are subject matter experts in the payment space and more specifically in the back office payment space. So you're now looking for people who are different from the ones that you looked for in 1986, 1987. From that perspective, we've gone on a different journey. We've reinstituted our company as a product company as opposed to a custom software development house. So that is a different journey. You have more responsibility in turning out product across multiple customers who use that same product, but they may use it differently. So we have a lot of infrastructure in addition to what we had for custom that we now have for product. So switching to product has been a journey for us in the last 15 to 20 years. Okay. Maybe we'll stick with you, Lynn. What is something you're passionate about? So it could be work-related or maybe personal. Well, we're always passionate about our work, but I particularly, and Jack as well, happen to be very much animal-oriented, conservation-oriented. So from my personal perspective, I am on the board of Nebraska Wildlife Rehab. We are an organization that takes in injured wildlife. When you live in an urban area such as Omaha, there are actually a lot of wildlife that live in the urban environment. Human beings aren't always very careful with how they deal with them. So we actually do take in injured animals, animals that have been orphaned. We're pretty passionate about that. Over the last several years, Jack and I have helped put together a wildlife center, Nebraska Wildlife Rehab Wildlife Center. It's called the Baldwin Wildlife Center. And over the last year or so, it became fully functional, another foundation here in town. 
put in money. So we actually have a hospital in it. It has the latest MRI, digital x-rays, operating tables, labs, plus rooms for the animals as they are recuperating. That has been a big focus for the two of us over the last couple of years. Last year, before we actually opened the center, the group handled over 7,000 wild animals. They usually do between five and 7,000 a year. And this year, we're already ahead of that. So I guess our passion is the Wildlife Center here in Omaha. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a unique passion over the last 160 episodes. I don't think I've had anyone bring that up. That's awesome. I'm glad you're doing that. That's needed everywhere, I'll say that. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. Jack, back to you, final question. I like to get people's perspective because I think everyone brings their kind of unique experience to this question. But when I started in payments 16 years ago, I kind of just fell into the industry and just haven't gotten out. But today, it's a lot different, right? These kids are going to college. They can learn about fintech. They can learn about payments. Some colleges now have courses about fintech. So I think kids now coming out of college can look at our industry if you broaden it to payments and fintech, and they look at it and say, hey, I can build a career in that industry. So my question is, what advice would you give someone who's coming out of college or maybe even coming from a different industry, but what would you tell them they need to do to be successful? Well, I would answer that question from the perspective of an entrepreneur because that's kind of where our space is. And I guess the message that I would want to convey to anyone coming in and starting a new fintech company is have perseverance. Don't quit if things don't seem to work out for you in the beginning. Sometimes it takes time for the market to take up with what you're offering. So hang in there and give your business model a chance to gain traction. I've often said, and I said, there are bad decisions. And then there are good decisions made at the wrong time. So don't necessarily walk away from a situation until you give the wrong time a chance to turn into the right time. That would be my message to anybody who's thinking of trying to start a new fintech organization in this day and time. Okay, Lynn, anything to add there? I do have a couple of comments. One of the areas I think, especially somebody coming out of a university and lacking some business background, they can obviously take business classes, but there are areas in the payments industry that cause you to have other concerns other than does your software actually work? And I'm alluding to security. This area of security and payments, every year it gets harder and harder to keep up with all of those bad guys out there. If you're creating a software product, you have to be able to be PCI, PADSS compliant. Nobody's going to license or lease your product unless you've got a check mark at the PCI Council's website. You're going to have to bring in auditors to look at your software to look at how you operate. So there are outside forces that you have to be aware of. And operationally, you have to be constantly aware of any of those bad guys out there, new threats against software in general. Obviously, they also apply to the payments industry. So you don't want somebody to be blindsided by the extra care that you have to have in the area of security. I would just say that people coming into it may not realize the work that you have to do to keep abreast of the vulnerabilities that are out there. Yeah, I think that's some good advice for sure. Lynn, Jack, we've covered a lot of ground so far about your personal journeys, the background of the company and what you do. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I think we've covered a lot of territory here, Greg. 
we certainly appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. What would be the best way for people to learn more about the company? Oh, absolutely. You go to our website. I mean, of course, or call us directly. You can find us out at www.bhmi.com and got contact information if you want to follow up, if you want to get some more information, you want to get some detail about what we do and why we're absolutely correct for your particular business. Go out to www.bhmi.com. Great. Well, Jack, Lynn, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know your time is very valuable, so I really appreciate you being here. We appreciate your time, Greg. Thank you. Thank you again. Absolutely. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 